It's kind of hard to believe this, but about 20 years ago, I started my journey in high school of of really getting more into running. And I was thankful that during that time, I had a group of young guys that were going to the same church as me that also wanted to get into running. So we decided one day that after Bible study at my house that we were going to take some time and we were going to go for a run together. And we did just that. So we put on our trainers, got our clothes all ready to go, and began to run around about two-mile lap around our neighborhood. And uh, it was really exciting. It was hard. It was challenging as I was learning for the first time how to really push myself. Uh, But if you're a young man and you know what it's like to run with a group of other guys, right, you start to size each other up. You start to think, okay, where do I fall in this list of people that are trying to challenge me right now? And I was no different, and I was doing exactly that. And as we were running... One of the guys said, hey, have you ever done Indian running before? And just kind of curious, anybody ever heard of Indian running before? Well, I'll save you the pain. Do not do that. If it ever comes as a suggestion to go on an Indian run, just say no. So what it is, though, if you've never done Indian running, is the last person, everybody forms into a line, and then the last person has to overtake the group and go to the front of the line, and that keeps on happening as you are running, where the last person has to overtake and make the first person go to the front. So we were doing this, and it was brutal already, but I was getting very upset as there was this one kid who just seemed to make it a little too easy. And now, I don't call myself, at least at that time, a runner, but I was okay and maybe better than the average runner, at least within this group. So I decided that as this kid was going to come up, his name was Jordan, that I was going to give him a hard time. Because see, he was about to pass me. So I decided that soon as he starts to try to get close to me, that I was going to really take off. So I did just that. Jordan was coming, and I saw him in the periphery of my vision. And right when he starts to come by, I start to pick up the pace with the group in order to make sure that Jordan can't overtake me because I want to give this guy a hard time because he's been giving me a hard time on the run. So we start taking off, and I'm starting to feel really good, and I'm starting to feel like I'm giving Jordan a hard time. But sure enough, I look over, and it doesn't even look like the kid's trying. And I'm like, oh, no, now I need to fully commit to this or I'm going to look like a fool. So I start running faster. He starts running faster. We start breaking away from the entire line. And then all of a sudden, we're on a full-on sprint where I'm looking at this guy like he is the enemy of my life. And we are running as fast as we can in order to overtake each other. And we make it all the way to the end before we stop. And of course, you can imagine, I'm panting, he's panting, and I'm totally upset that this happened, but at the same time, it was fun. You see, there's a wonderful thing that I think occurs when you start to engage in life with other people. And the point here that I want to make is is that there is power in numbers. There's power when we start to rub shoulders with other people. You see, I believe on that run that I ran faster than I had ever run in that time, probably further than I had ever run in that time, and it was all because I was running with other people. 
See, I think today's message and the verses that we're going to be looking at speak to this truth. It speaks to the power that happens when we as the church collective take seriously God's word and allow it to be something that we apply to our lives. Amen? And maybe you've already experienced that in your life. Maybe you have, for yourself, already experienced the power of Christian community and how when we gather together and allow our lives to bleed into the lives of other people, the profound effect that can have. So let's go ahead at this time and open up God's word. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 5 today. And for today, we're going to be covering verses 13 through seven, or thirteen through 16. So we'll do a whole three verses today. Now, for this series, we're going to really be taking our time where it'll be pretty normal for us to just cover a, a few verses. And I think that kind of depends on the series that we're in. Sometimes we're going through narratives in Scripture where it's best to maybe cover more chapters or at least more verses at a time. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very different where there's so many truths that he is that really needs to be unpacked. So we're going to do the best that we can uh, with this series and today to unpack some of these verses. So again, I invite you to open up to Matthew chapter five, verse thirteen. For anybody that does not have their Bible today, we'll be putting most of these verses on the screen so you can follow us there. So let's go ahead and read now. Uh, Matthew 5, 13. And again, Jesus has already begun his famous Sermon on the Mount. And there's this large group of people that he's preaching to. And uh, 5, 13 says this. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, maybe this phrase means more to you today than it would have in this time period. But if you really think about it, this idea of you are the salt of the earth is kind of an odd opening phrase to use within this section, right? I don't know about you, but when I try to be romantic with my wife, I don't go, hey, baby, just want to let you know. When I see you, I think about salt. <laughs> I usually don't do that, right? I'll, I'll say you're as beautiful as a flower and, you know, so on and so forth. And I don't know, I don't know how that would work in your context, but at least I'm not trying to do that in my own. But here we have Jesus opening up and saying to us, we are are the salt of the earth. So I think it's important because of that to think to ourselves, what is he trying to communicate? You see, if you didn't know, in this time period, the word salt and this idea of salt was oftentimes used by rabbis. And in very simple ways to where if I explain to you what salt does, we all pretty much know. So I'll ask that question to you guys right now. Maybe one of you will be bold enough to answer. What does salt help with? It, okay, I heard, I heard the first one. It makes food taste better, okay? 
Uh, Could we all agree? Yeah, it makes food taste better. It adds flavor to our lives. You see, Melita, you're right up on there and on number one. You did it. Good job. And what is the other thing that salt might do? Preserves. All right, let's see if you're on the board. Ding, ding, ding. Good job. You win a prize. (laughs) Salt adds flavor and it preserves. So make no mistake, Jesus is trying to teach us something here. He wants us to be able to see for ourselves the kinds of people that we are meant to be. You see, in a world where we oftentimes do not know our own identity, where many people are oftentimes questioning their identity, it can be a very formative and powerful statement to be able to receive what an identity is. You know, I remember especially when you're in those formative years, when you're in middle school and high school, wondering what kind of person you will be. What profession will I take? Where will I live? Who will I marry? What will life look like in a few years? And those years are oftentimes so important as you try to discover and figure yourself out. Well, here we have in this sermon this powerful idea of Jesus telling you exactly what you ought to resemble in life you ought to resemble salt. You ought to be the kind of person that adds flavor to people's lives. Now think about that and maybe ask yourself that question. When you are investing in the lives of other people or when other people are meeting you, maybe for the first time or maybe for a long time, Do you experience or do they experience a sense of flavor in their life? Now, I'm a Latin guy, and I like to think that when I enter into somebody's life that they get a little bit of that Latin Puerto Rican flavor. But really, what I'm asking here is much more than just style. What I'm asking here is, is do people feel a sense of when when they come into contact with you, that their lives are more flavorful? Are you able, when you interact with others, to be the flavor of life to them? Now, I want to bring that thought a little bit further because maybe you're saying, you know, Pastor Kevin, I really am not sure. I'd like to think I am. I'm not Latin, so I don't think I have as much flavor as you, but I want to see maybe if I do. So I think an easy way to do that is to just examine, well, what does it mean to have flavor? And what, how does God in his word define, maybe not flavor, but fruits? Well, in scripture, we know that God defines his fruits By having what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. I hear some of you already saying these words, which tells me that you've heard this before, and it's a good thing. Scripture calls this the fruits of the Spirit. 
all of those wonderful words of love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, which to me means that if I'm abiding in God, if I'm abiding in Christ, then those fruits are what naturally manifest itself. You see, the worst thing to do, or the worst thing to experience, and it's happened to me, and I don't know if it's ever happened to you before, is when you go over to the local hardware store or plant store and you buy a pack of seeds and then you put it into the ground and then a tree grows or a plant grows that was different than what you purchased. Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) Maybe a, a, a seed got snuck in there that was different than what you thought. As Christians, though, we are always, always meant to bring about these fruits. In fact, it's one of the wonderful truths that we can uh, affirm and be confident of, that when we abide in Christ, our peace increases, our kindness increases, our love increases. And these are what I believe are the flavors of life. Amen? So then can you say, when you enter into the lives of other people, are those fruits and qualities being experienced by the people that you visit with? If the answer is no, I want to press you a little bit on that. And I want to ask you why. Because if this is who Christ is, if this is what his children are known as, if he's calling us to be salt and people are not experiencing salt in their lives, then why is that? That's a hard question to ask because the answer could simply just mean I'm not intentional enough. I'm not really taking time to reflect God's glory, to be invested in the Lord being a ministering into my life and taking that seriously enough to do what? To be the flavor of somebody else's life. You know, I remember a few years ago I was serving at a different church in Florida and there was always a greeter there at the church, and he would open up the doors, and at this church, we had two sets of double doors, and there was a a group of greeters on one side and a group of greeters on the other side, and there was this particular man named Gene, and there's a good reason why I remember this guy, even though we had hundreds of people come into the church, and that was specifically because every time Gene opened the door for me, he would slip me something in a Ziploc bag. At first, I thought, man, what are you giving me, drugs here? (laughs) But we weren't in Colorado, so I wasn't as worried. (laughs) But soon enough, he would tell me, no, 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 these are mangoes from my mango tree. I, I, you know, every year we have more than we need, so I dry them out, and I I typically give them to the pastors, or just people that I feel uh, impressed on to give them to, so... You know, I took the mangoes, not really knowing what to expect, and ate them later, and boy, they were incredible. Better than any dried mango I've ever bought at a store. So as you can imagine, this starts to become a habit for me, and every time I go to church, I make sure that out of both sets of the double doors that I go on Gene's side, right? Because I want to get my little fix every week, so much so that if I don't see Gene or if I didn't get my Ziploc bag full of mangoes, I was a little bit disappointed. 
See, that is what I think flavor can look like. Not necessarily the, the act of giving somebody mangoes, but the act of experiencing somebody in life that you want to revisit because they bring you a sense of goodness. I wonder, is that what people experience when they meet Pastor Kevin? Do they want to revisit a relationship with me because I am able to bring them goodness in life? I hope so. And I hope the same is true for each of you, that others around you are able to experience that. But not just flavor, but what? Preservation. Salt preserves. And this maybe is the harder of the two to navigate in life. See, it could be easy to be the kind of person that brings goodness into somebody's life, but sometimes it can be hard to be the kind of person that preserves in life, right? Because if something is going to spoil, it means what? It's typically heading in the wrong direction. And to be a preservative to them is to be somebody who is able to, in some ways, redirect their life. To be the kind of person that can benefit them to prevent them from going in a path that will lead them to spoiling. Let's keep on reading Matthew 5. Jesus continues after saying, you are the salt. He says this, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You see, our English language loses a little bit of the impact that Jesus would have had in the phrasing here. He uses an Aramaic word, tapel, which uh, is, is roughly translated for us to, to lose its taste. But that word had double meaning for them. It meant to not only lose taste, but it also meant to be foolish. You see, Jesus wants us to not only add flavor and to preserve people in life, but he wants us to be consistent with who he's calling us to be. A very sad and oftentimes harsh reality is that us as Christians, or when we experience Christians, that there can be a very much an inconsistency between who we are called to be and who we are actually living our lives out as. You know, I jokingly always tell people that I don't have a Christian fish on my car because I don't want people to judge my Christianity based off of my driving, right? <laughs> but there's a truth there because I realized that maybe, maybe now I'm better, but I realized at least in one point in my life that if somebody thought I was a Christian with the way that I was driving, I was not being a very good Christian. <laughs> but who are you to others? I think this is what Jesus is continuously trying to push. That true salt cannot lose its saltiness, which means that we need to be consistent, church, with who God is calling us to be. 
in all areas, in all stages, and in all matters of our lives. I think one of the hard things that I oftentimes experience within our culture is we have this ideal that people should not talk about what? Faith and politics. And I understand why people say those kinds of things, because if you're going to get into a heated debate about something, it's usually going to be around faith and politics, right? Because these are the things that, for most of us, are the deepest, important matters of life. But I would say if something is of the deepest, important matters of life, then it's probably worth talking about, right? And for whatever reason, at least when it comes to our faith, we can be reserved because maybe it's culturally normative for us to be reserved and to hold those things at arm length. And if we're the only way that we can show that we're Christians is just by being nice. When in reality, I believe that God is calling us to look very different from the world but not just in deed, but also in action. I mean, the both of them are very important because for some of us, maybe we're really, really good at sh- demonstrating and showing our faith through our words, but we're not very good at what? Our actions. And maybe for others of us, we could be very good at our actions, but not really great with our words, and we need both. A.W. Tozer, and I'll put this quote for you on the screen, he talk, talking about worship says this, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. You see, church, I believe that you and I are truly called to be salt. And the reason why we need to experience salt and live out our saltiness with others is because the world doesn't have it. The world does not have the flavor and the preservatives that Christ offers in us through his life and ministry. You know, I remember a few years ago, I guess it's more than a few now, about a decade ago, uh, when my wife and I were considering moving out to Colorado, uh, we were doing a campus visit here at the seminary where I was um, uh, doing my master's degree. And I remember we were doing a campus visit, and uh, my wife and I, we were going to be married in just a couple of months. Um, So... We weren't married yet, so my mom and dad had to come out with us to make sure that they were chaperoning us. And it's always kind of funny when, you know, you have your parents with you as adults, but they're chaperoning. And anyways, it's a good thing. But I remember for fun, we decided that while we were visiting here, we were going to go down south to Colorado Springs and visit Cave of the Winds. Any of you gone to Cave of the Winds before? Yeah, really cool time, great way to spend an afternoon. So there's two tour options at this time that we could go through on Cave of the Winds, and we decided to take the lantern tour, and it's pretty cool. You get this old-fashioned styled lantern, and you get to wander around in the caves. And I remember as we were navigating all of these caves, the guide took us to a room, and this room 
ended up, it, it ended up narrowing at the end, and it was a really, really small space to be in. And all of a sudden, the guide picked up her lantern and looked to all of us and said, okay, now we're going to blow out our lanterns. And I want you to notice that you will not be able to see a single thing. Because you see, she had guided us to a part of the cave where there was not a single sliver of light being able to make its way into this cave dwelling. So kind of excited, we all start looking around at each other and, you know, who's going to blow theirs out first? And one by one, we start turning off the lanterns in the cave and it's getting darker and darker and darker until what? That last lantern is blown out. And we're sitting in complete darkness at this point. And I remember taking my hand and just kind of running it across my face because I just wanted to see if there was anything that I would be able to see. And of course, nothing could be seen. And I think that is telling of why Jesus then says these words. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, Jesus wants us to get very clearly here the effect that we need to have on other people. That as salt to other people, we need to be able to bring flavor and preservatives to people's life. But also as light to other people, we need to be the ones that others can see. I, I think sometimes it's lost on us, the reality that we live in a dark world, and I'm not always certain why. Maybe it's because we still have many privileges of modern comforts that allow us to, I don't know, falsely think that, there, that this world isn't in darkness. But the reality is, is that sin has created so many fractures within our world that we are constantly constantly being made aware of evil and darkness and things that really corrupt and destroy lives and people. But in the face of that, who does Jesus call us to be? He calls us to be light. He calls us to be the ones that help others see. You know, it's an amazing thing to be in a complete place of darkness, to have your hand right in front of you and not be able to see it, to be in a room filled with others and not be able to visually see anybody. You know, if anything, it can create fear in the heart. Being in darkness, scientifically speaking, creates those exact feelings of fear and isolation. And make no mistake, I think Jesus wants us to be able to see those images that we all understand and know very well and realize that that is the state of humanity without God. That we are in darkness. You know, sometimes it really pains me because I, I, I hate to say this, and 
church, you know that I love you, but one of the struggles that I oftentimes see, at least being a pastor here in the Western world, is that we make our Christian faith so much about what God can do for us that we fail to see the mission that he calls us to. God, for many, many, many people, unfortunately, is just the feel-good God. He's the one that we go to when we're having a tough day, when we don't get the thing that we want, or when we want something in particular, so we, you know, rub our lamps in order to have him pop up and hopefully help us get exactly what we were hoping for. And don't get me wrong, there's some good there. You should be able to feel free to go to God to bring your desires to him, but it's so much more than that. You see, I think one of the reasons why I have breath in my lungs, and so do you, one of the reasons why after I said yes to Jesus and put my faith in him, that he didn't take me from this earth, is to be exactly what he's saying here at the Sermon on the Mount, that I need to be a light. And I wonder what would happen to the church if we took that a little bit more seriously. If we took this duty of being a light, this duty of being salt to others more seriously and stopped individualizing our faith to where our faith is only, God, what could you do to me? But rather, God, how can I be your sent person into this world? You know, a disconnect for me between how at least the American church has always formulated missions work is, is for whatever reason we think missions is, is limited to going overseas. And don't get me wrong, that is 100% missions. But the reality is, is that if you're not an individual who is called to go overseas, that you are an individual that is called to be a missionary, called to be light, called to be salt, to all the people around you, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to the strangers that you interact with and encounter, you are called to be light to them, amen? I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that God gives me the responsibility to shine my light to others. You know, I think, unfortunately, maybe the children's song and the kids probably have it more right than us when they sing the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. And for whatever reason, we forget that mission. It is a mission for you to shine your light, and it is a waste of your light for it to be hidden. I mean, it's so counterintuitive, right? To light something and then to hide it, right? Now I get why my dad was always so angry at me when I was young and I would leave a light on, especially when we left the house. Why? Because it was wasteful. Don't be wasteful with the light that God has given you. Because your light, which ultimately comes from him, is the very thing that people need 
in order to orient themselves. You cannot, or at least you cannot easily orient yourself without being able to do what? To see. When you see, it is so much easier to orient yourself and navigate yourself through this world. And that's exactly what you get to do, Christian. You get to help other people orient themselves for maybe the first time in their lives. It's why the simple big idea for today is God has given you a light to shine. God has given you a light to shine. I think I was around the age of 15 when I was really feeling that call, that push to go into ministry. And that was very different than where I thought my life was going, at least before that, or at least for anybody that might have known me before that time period. I remember I was so on fire to do things for the Lord. I was so ready to to serve, and I did my best to try to serve. I remember when I was starting to get a little bit older in my faith, and I was a few years in, and graduated high school, was in college. I remember just feeling a certain dying of my light or dying of my flame. I was still trying to be in ministry, but at this point, it wasn't as clear for me anymore. And I remember there was a, 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 my, my local church back home had an internship position, and I applied to it. But if I were to be honest with you, I felt kind of half-hearted. Like, I probably wasn't the best guy. So I remember going and meeting the pastor there and talking to him. And like you do in most interviews, right, you try to make a good impression. And I remember as him and I were talking, I just had to stop. And I had to tell the pastor, you know, to be honest with you, I feel like I'm being really fake right now. In fact, I feel like I've been struggling in my faith for a while, and I'm kind of questioning this whole ministry thing. Not what you say usually if you want a job. (laughs) I remember leaving that moment and getting a call the next day from this pastor and thinking to myself, okay, here it goes. He's going to tell you, sorry, we offered the job to somebody else. And instead it was, well, when can you start? And I was so confused by that. So much so that eventually I needed to ask him as I was starting to work at this church, I needed to ask him, why did you hire me? I know that there were people that were better than me. Why did you hire me? And he told me that sometimes in life, in order to fan that flame, you need to know what it's like to be able to shine your light. And I believe that in doing that, what I ended up realizing is, is that I was, as I was actually pouring myself into other people, my light was starting to shine brighter in life. So this idea of being salt and being light is so much more than just being on mission. It's also life-giving. There's this amazing effect that violates all the laws of thermodynamics out there, that when you give, somehow you end up receiving oftentimes more than you ever give. 
If you've ever been stagnant in your faith, or maybe you're stagnant in your faith right now, I'd encourage you and invite you to experience what it feels like to be a light. It's why as a church we've tried to strategically in these seasons of transition that we've been in, have tried to put forth some language for you guys to help orient yourself in your discipleship journey here. It's why you regularly hear us say things like you need to, what, worship, connect, serve, and give. Because all of those elements offer us growth. And you see, I believe Jesus knew very well that we needed to be light. But the thing is, is he didn't make that equation one that depletes us, but rather one that when we are being a light, energizes us and motivates us. It's why so often, and just like in that story where a pastor took a chance on me, when you start to serve others, you start to experience the blessing for yourself. So I'd encourage you that if you are not serving, to consider doing that. That is a very simple and practical way to be a light. And guess what? We need some volunteers with our children's ministry and our nursery. And if that sounds intimidating for you, we'll find something else. We need to, church, let our lights shine. We need to, church, identify, inform ourselves around this idea of being the kinds of people that bring flavor, preservation, and light into other people's lives. Amen? My hope for you this week as a way of application is, is that you would take time to think this week, how can I make my light shine? Maybe that means reaching out to somebody over the phone and giving them some sort of encouraging word. Maybe that means offering to pray for someone. Don't just use the phrase, oh, I'll be praying for you, brother. Why don't you just stop right there and pray for them right there? Don't use that as just a fake phrase. But use the skills that God has given you to bless somebody else through your words, and through your actions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word teaches us so much more than oftentimes we comprehend. That you are calling us to be citizens of your kingdom. And that through that calling, you are calling us into ministering and being the light in other people's lives. I pray, Lord, that this week that we would take that task seriously. That we would consider for ourselves our own areas where we can serve and love on other people. Where we can truly demonstrate our faith in action by being a light to others. Help us to do that, Lord. And for those, Lord, that have maybe felt like, boy, my light has not shined in a long time. Father, I pray that you would just be an accelerant for them today. That you would help them experience all the power 
all the wonder, all the glory of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.